Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. This is John St. Augustine. Before I get to the regular show open, I have a disclaimer when it comes to the audio quality. Uh, I didn't have the microphone plugged in the way it was supposed to, so I was working off the computer's microphone, which is vastly different than the sound that you're hopefully hearing now. So I was ready to redo the whole show, uh, but I don't think I could capture everything I said just the way that I said it and repeat it in a way that I think was effective. So I'm just going to disclaimer going into this. Uh, the audio is a little bit different than you're used to hearing, but I think the content hopefully overcomes all that. Let's get on with it. Life 2.0 podcast of 2023, which is a number in some way, shape, or form is beyond my comprehension. I was out to breakfast with a friend of mine that I went to high school this past week, and uh, I graduated in 1977, and I don't think I ever thought much past 1978, to be honest with you. So the number 2023 is, that's George Orwellian, Ray Bradbury, Star Trek stuff, and here we are in the 21st century, getting it done. My first uh, thank you, of course, is to the subscribers of this podcast. Um, I really, really appreciate most of the people that are subscribers have been with this show for going on five years. I mean, that's that hits me right in my, uh, you know, right in the breadbasket here, right in the middle. And I'm just so thankful and, and honored uh, to continue to do this and that you continue to see fit to support it. So thank you so much. Well, what are we going to talk about this week? Nothing's been happening in the world. I had a lot of things I could choose from, but the one thing that has come back time and time again is the young man, Damar Hamlin. Um, Over 12 million people watching Monday Night Football last week, and I was one of those 12 million, uh, watched this firsthand of a man dying on the football field and then being revived on the football field. And that is not something we are used to seeing. I will say... That because I go back a few years, I remember when Chuck Hughes, who played for the Detroit Lions, died on a football field. They were playing the Bears, actually, back in 1970. And that was not brought up too much in the conversation this past week. A lot of the guys that are on there talking about it are younger than I am, so they don't have that recollection, the the sports talkies. And uh, I think I showed up once online somewhere, but I remember clearly in 1970. And uh, Chuck Hughes died in heart condition. It had problems before. And they were playing the Bears, as I mentioned. And at some point, a photo was taken with Chuck Hughes laying on the ground. And Dick Butkus, who was arguably the meanest man in football ever, uh, looked like like he was standing over him triumphantly. But what he was really doing was signaling to the sideline to get help because he knew something was drastically wrong. And that picture came out and uh, it didn't do anything for public relations between the Bears and the Lions for a long time. But once somebody figured out really what happened, that all shifted. But I do remember when Chuck Hughes died. And since that time, there has been no deaths on the field. Of course, there are deaths directly related to what's happened on the field that occur off the field. The whole CTE thing uh, with these suicides and uh, these these disposable heroes of ours taking their lives so we can be entertained. And this is a a sore spot for me to a greater or lesser degree. It's also one of those spots that I have to have like the, uh, you know, the, the back and forth, left and right, up and down, push and pull, tug of war with myself because I played 
a lot of football. I loved playing the game of football. I started playing Park District football when I was just a little guy. And then I went on to the traveling team for the Park District. Then I went from there to high school football. So you already got four, five, six, seven years in. By the time I you know, graduated from high school, I had seven years in. Then I played three more years in college. And then I played five more years in semi-parole football or semi-pro. And that's a lot of football. It's a lot of banging and, and uh, knocking heads and all sort of things that go along with the game. It's a violent game, even at the level of semi-pro in college, for sure. You know, it's all equal when it comes down to it. If you weigh 250 pounds, whether you're in the NFL or you're in college, it's still a collision. If you're 185 pounds in high school and another guy's 185 and you hit head-to-head, it's still a serious collision. So to me, it is a violent, fast, challenging, difficult, incredible experience, the game of football. Uh, Even though I have my maladies from the game, which I'll talk about here in a second, I wouldn't have not played it. I don't think I would change it. I, I, it's really hard. That's the tug of war. You know, my, my right knee knows when it's going to rain two days before it does because I don't have any cartilage left. And it gets this pressure. And I'm like, oh, we're going to get some preset. And uh, my fingers don't work like they're supposed to. Matter of fact, this morning, because of the weather, I'm wearing these kind of pressurized gloves that I have here that help my fingers work a little bit better. Most of that's from football. My neck, forget it. You know, my head goes about four degrees to the right and about eh, ten and a half to the left. Uh, I'm starting to see a chiropractor take care of some of that stuff all these years later. And uh, perhaps the the most difficult uh, thing with all this comes through collisions. And I've probably had four, five, six concussions over that time that I played. And some of them I remember when they happened and other ones, no clue. Uh, we call them bell ringers. Oh, he got his bell rung. You're kind of dazed and walking around. And at the time, that was the symbol of being tough and manly. And I've had conversations with my high school coach, not so much my college coach. And there was rotating semi-pro coaches. So really my high school coach. And, you know, they didn't know back then what the ramifications would be of a lot of what we were up against. We used to do these drills where you'd lay on your back. A, a guy would lay on his back. The other guy lay on his back. And you get up and ram each other. It's called, you know, the, you just head to head. And that foot, again, it's a violent game. This is what it's all about. So getting prepared for that in practice, I'll never forget this one guy. You know, I was a sophomore or a junior, probably a sophomore. And we we all practiced together uh, towards the end of spring practice, I believe it was. You know what? I stand corrected. It was, I remember it was really hot, so it was probably August. And we're all practicing together. And one of the seniors a guy who played guard, he was built like Fred Flintstone, basically, uh, shoulders as wide as the Nile River, if you get my drift. He wasn't real tall, but he was wide as he all get out. And we had this drill where there was a running back and a guard or a pulling t- uh, blocker, and then I would have to make a tackle. The defensive guys, which I played, would make tackles. And you're in these shoots, and the coach blows the whistle, and here comes this guy around the corner of these shoots like a locomotive. Now, as a sophomore going into my junior year, maybe I probably weighed 175 pounds, maybe. This guy was about 220, if not more. And the closer he got to me, the bigger and wider he got. I'll never forget it. And he hit me like a freaking locomotive, and I landed up in Tuesday, and it was only on a Monday that this happened. Uh, but that was how we did it back then. And, and, of course, the helmets were not what they are now. I don't almost recognize these brain buckets these guys are using now. So when I first started playing, it was – suspension helmets and I would have this 
big rubbed raw uh, patch on my forehead after football practice, and it would stay there the whole uh, season. You know, it was kind of a badge of courage. You have this big raw spot on your forehead. And so then eventually we had air helmets and we had water helmets and kind of went on from there. And these guys now have these state-of-the-art things that, that are hopefully saving these injuries. But the, the, the worst thing I ever had happen to me that I can recall, what's called a stinger. And that's when you're, you're, you're the top of my head hits a part of the opponent that is immovable. It's like the irresistible force meets the immovable object. And the neck compresses, and that means everything underneath it, the spine compresses. And it feels like molten lava is being run down your backside, all the way from the top of my head down to my tailbone. I mean, right down the middle of my back, down my, my spine. And the nerves are just freaking out. And you actually, at least for me, I was immobile. I mean, I was like paralyzed and with this pain down my neck and into my back. And I laid there for a few minutes and I didn't know what was going to happen. Eventually it subsides. I thought, well, I'm okay. So you go out for a few plays and then I come back in and the same thing happens. And of course, now it's locked in. It's something that's going to be an ongoing challenge for sure. So that stayed with me many, many years uh, in football. And I always worried about it because I felt like if I turn my head just a certain way, I may not get up one time but I kept playing. I remember a guy we had on our, our high school team, uh, Sam, who played linebacker. He was a year older than me, and he was paralyzed for about a day, somewhere in there. He got paralyzed at the game. They took him from the game to the hospital, and after the game, we all went to his room with our equipment on, probably, uh, to see how he was doing. I'll never forget him laying in the bed, and he eventually recovered from that. That was the end of football for him, but I think he came back and coached because there's something about the game that drives you forward. Can't explain it. If you've played this game, at any major level, or if you coach the game at that level, you get it. It's hard for people who have not put on a helmet, shoulder pads, and put a boiled their mouthpiece to get it just right in there, you know, the right fit uh, to understand that. And, and, and sometimes I don't even understand that. So this this stinger thing stayed with me for I don't know how long, and eventually it subsided. But it is part of the challenges I have with some nerve damage now in my, my legs and my lower back, and, you know, we're working on all that stuff. So there is obviously fallout from the game. Watching the Bills play the Bengals last Monday night, uh, well, let me do it this way. If you don't follow me on Facebook, you should. But if you don't, I get it. Let me share what I wrote two days after this uh, event took place with DeMar Hamlin. Then I'm going to come back on the other side and... Uh, and expand on that. I was mid-bite through a Jimmy John sandwich when DeMar Hamlin dropped to the ground as if he slipped on ice. It wasn't the kind of rolling around in agony, holding your knee thing we're used to seeing on the field after a vicious tackle. Matter of fact, the play was routine when Hamlin was on the stop of Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins. Within seconds, the millions of people watching the last Monday night football game of the season were witness to a true life and death situation. It's not the highly produced stuff on the murder or rescue shows, but rather a visceral series of moments that stopped the most celebrated American sport in its tracks. Our gladiators, warriors, our heroes, weeping like little children, giant men on one knee, tears streaming down, faces uncovered from their brain bucket helmets, all of them, both Bills and Bengals, in a unified state of shock. In one mere moment, one man rose up and one man went down after a play both of them have been involved in in their careers over a thousand times, if not more. 
Hamlet on the defense, Higgins on the offense, the historic clash and horrific collisions that pushes the pigskin up and down the field in search of victory. Hamlin remains in critical condition. The Bills versus Bengals game is on indefinite hold for the past two days, and the sports talkers have been beating the drum about how insignificant the game of football is compared to the concern for DeMar. An important perspective that came at such a very high cost. I called my old pal Jerry Kramer yesterday, NFL Hall of Fame Green Bay Packer guard, for his take. This is a guy who endured every sort of malady on and off the field during his pro career, and he echoed the voices of those who have played the sport. Football is a 100% injury rate event. No one who plays for any length of time comes out whole. We also talked about the fact that when the Packers lose, domestic violence goes up in Green Bay, which probably isn't unique just to that team, but it does shed light on the difficulty that fans have when it comes to losing and that the game has become their identity in so many different ways. That doesn't happen as much in Chicago, but because we're basically accepted losing as a way of life on the field for the most part. But I digress. That praying thing, John, Jerry said, is not something I thought I would ever see much of on the field, but it was the right thing to do. I was moved. So were millions of others. Images of Bills and Bengals fans holding each other for comfort. Quarterback Joe Burrows hugging quarterback Josh Allen spread all over social media. A reminder that it's just a game played by incredibly talented large men who sacrifice their health for our entertainment. These, then, are our disposable heroes reduced to mere mortals. Unless you're a Bills fan, chances are you've never heard of DeMar Hamlin or his story before Monday night. He was born in McKeesport, Pennsylvania in 1998, when his mother Nina was just 16 and his dad Mario was only 17. The NFL star was forced to spend almost four years without his dad, who was jailed for three and a half years after he was convicted of selling drugs to make ends meet. He remained in close contact with his father while he was incarcerated, with Mario calling his son as much as he could to see how he was doing. Hamlin also witnessed the murder of three friends being shot to death when he was a teenager. Those murders remain unsolved. The Bill Star said, There were times where I could have steered left or steered right, but my parents were always there to straighten me out and get me back on the track. After attending Catholic Central High School, he decided to attend and play football at the University of Pittsburgh to be close to home, playing five seasons from 2016 to 2020. The Buffalo Bills selected Hamlin in the sixth round of the 2021 NFL Draft, 212th overall, and on May 21, 2021, he agreed to a four-year rookie deal with them. He was promoted to one of the starting safeties for the Bills after Micah Hyde suffered a neck injury. Today, as of this writing, he's fighting for his life. Once people found out that Hamlin had started a GoFundMe page for a toy drive during the pandemic with a goal of $2,500, the money started pouring in and has now topped $5.5 million with major donations from the likes of Tom Brady, Matt Stafford, and Russell Wilson. The human condition is such that it usually takes a tragedy to wake us up and shake us up, and it's been said that in times of great challenge is when we are most alive. Then the perspective shift comes into view and shows us that which is more important than the final score or the next draft pick or instant replay call. As I embark on my journey in the NFL, I will never forget where I come from, Hamlin wrote on the GoFundMe page back in 2020. I am committed to using my platform to positively impact the community that raised me. I'm holding the space that DeMar Hamlin gets the chance to spend every single dime of that money on toys for kids that have it tough, just like he did.
So that's what I wrote Wednesday, this past Wednesday on Facebook. And as of today, things have changed dramatically. Damar Hamlin is on the upswing. It looks like he's going to be okay. He is off his breathing tube. He's been able to FaceTime his teammates. Uh, and the first question he asked when he was starting to come out of the sedation was, who won the game? And the doctor said, you did. You won the game of life. So this remarkable event to me has so many different facets to it. Number one, let's work with just the physical stuff on the field. Uh, it is an anomaly for this to happen, obviously, to anyone that plays the game of football. As I said, there's these other injuries, but something like this, cardiac arrest from the, a hit of a certain way, basically stopped his heart. And in order to get it going again, somebody had to do CPR. And that someone is Denny Kellington. He is an assistant trainer with the Buffalo Bills. And as soon as he got on the field within 10 seconds, he knew what was going on. And he was able to get CPR started to keep DeMar Hamlin's heart going. So here's this guy who is somewhat obscure as an assistant trainer, not the head trainer. He's one of the trainers for the Buffalo Bills. And he runs out and gets the heart started again. He's a former Syracuse University athletic trainer. And he was there at the right time in the right place to do the right thing. So that's number one. Number two, within 20 seconds, that ambulance was coming out on the field. And the rest of the team showed up. So here this first guy keeps the heart going. The team shows up. They start taking over and to keep him going. The third piece of this is, for me, is that as soon as we started to all witness this take place, the emotion for this young man, who most people didn't know before the game, myself included. Why would I? I don't live in Buffalo. I don't follow them. The emotion was palpable. It was emotion for the players around him on the field, for the coaches. And you could just see up into the stands, it was like a ripple effect of emotion. It got very still and very quiet. And Joe Buck and Troy Aikman had nothing to say. I've been in a situation, I've been on air, where there's been something that's very challenging and we have to do what's called fill time. The same thing with Susie Colbert and uh, Booger McFarland and Adam Shafter. So it, this ripple effect, and you could, I could physically feel it. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on here? You know, you tune in to watch a football game and you get all of that. This was only like five minutes and 58 seconds into the game. And something was amiss in a good way. And to me, there are these times in my own experience. So this is just me sharing from what I've experienced and the things I've observed, is that there are these larger life lessons that are presented to us in mass that have ramifications we can't even possibly imagine in the moment. I'm reminded of 9-11 only from the perspective of that we were all in this collective kind of um, awe and not in a good way. Like, life was being presented to us in such a raw fashion that it's not what we're used to. What we're used to is produced reality. What we're used to is fake news. What we're used to is people doing tug-of-war over minor issues that they think are a major. And this is one of the first time here's a major issue, and what used to be around a football was pushed to the side. This was a young man who basically died on the football field. Most people never see that in their whole entire life. And to me, it pushed myself 
into grave concern for this man who I don't even know. And that's called empathy. I actually called a couple people. I said, are you watching this? Because there's something else going on. I've always been aware of the fact that there's the events themselves, but then there's the ripple effect. And the ripple effect is not just something you see on the surface. It also go down layer after layer after layer. This, the, the ripple effect of this event has yet to be fully realized, in my opinion, and my observation, and definitely my experience. And so here are all these groups of men and women on the field in prayer, taking a knee. And I remember just a few years ago that taking a knee meant something very different in football, didn't it? I'm not even going to get into all that. But here is the same physical stance being taken for a very, very different reason to a greater or lesser degree. And that unification of that taking a knee in prayer and in goodwill and good thoughts and good energy for this young man, 20 years old, it somehow spoke of a much broader condition for all of us. Yeah, it's a football game. And yeah, they're, they're, they're highly paid athletes. And yeah, it's just, it really is just entertainment. And they are disposable heroes because as soon as the next thing happens, they're off and it just changes and, and that's how it works. It's, a, it's an assembly line. There's something bigger here. And I have been working in my brain over the last two or three days since I wrote that thing on Facebook to figure what the, is it. And all I could think of was that could have been me. Not on the football field, but in a time where something happens and I'm done. Now, I've had some of that when I got electrocuted at 19. They had to start my heart again. I get that. That's not something most people have. But that's what it took me back to is at some point being witness to the end of life is life affirming. It should be. And it's again, it's not the, the Purdue stuff. You know, because it makes me wonder, you know, about... 3,000, 4,000 people a day die here in the United States every day. And we don't know most of what happens. We may see their names in the obituary page or what it might be. But unless you're right there, it's not visceral enough to go, wow. Because, you know, it, that's how it works. If you've been a first responder or you've been someone who is, you know, a police department, you've been around this stuff, you get it. I think you get it most, more than most people in the general public. So here's the general public, all the people in the stadium and everybody on the field and all of us watching at home who unexpectedly were shown the fragility of life through a game, through a game. One of the uh, interesting quotes that I heard, I don't know if anybody else caught this, was one of the doctors at the medical center basically said, you know, the heart is run by electricity. That's why they jump you to get it started again. And our, our systems are, are electronic in so many different ways. It is an electrical system. And in order to get his heart going in the right rhythm, they have to do certain things to get it there. But when he said the heart is electricity, I started to think about how electricity connects all things. Now, look, I'm not an electrician, but I can turn a freaking light switch on. If you asked me to put a, a you know electric grid together, I couldn't do it. But I know where the switch is at. I think that's for most of us is right about there. We know where the switch is. We just don't know how it works. This was similar to me in some way, shape, or form, meaning that we all have access to the switch, and at some point it can be flipped off at any time, and that may not be our call. And sometimes if we're lucky and if all the stars line up and we have more purpose, I guess, to be here, and it's not your time, the switch goes back on again like it did for this kid. But all of us, at some point, even Damar Hamlin down the line, I hope it's 100 years for him, the switch gets turned off. 
And to me, that is like the major wake-up call. I say to this all the time, and I talk about that talk I did in 2018, the uh, human math. But, you know, life expectancy is one thing, and what you expect out of life is something else. And life deals stuff to us all the time we never expected. So how you respond to that stuff is kind of what makes life what it is. Life expectancy in this country is about 78 point some odd years to go, if you're lucky. And there are people that get a lot more than that, and there are people that get a lot less than that. And I don't know how that works. Neither does anybody else, nor should we, I don't think. So when you get a chance at 20 that you've checked out through no fault of your own, playing a game you love, and the switch gets flipped back on, I can't wait to see what this kid's going to do. So the update, of course, is he is communicating. He's off the ventilator. He's breathing on his own. He's able to FaceTime with his his uh, teammates. And that toy fund that he started in 2020, and he was hoping to raise 2500 bucks to buy toys for kids that have a, t- a tough time at Christmas, is now over $7 million. It's gone up even since I wrote that thing on Wednesday. So now there's $7 million from complete strangers, for the most part, sitting in a bank account so other kids' lives are going to be changed. So what is the ripple effect, really? I mean, it continues. So because this guy almost checks out, and the way we feel we need to support that and help that is to give to this project that he started. He's not making millions of per year. He's a rookie. He was. He's not walking in making $40 million. Just 2500 bucks, and I can help some kids. He hadn't even reached that goal yet. Now there's $7 million in there. So what are the ramifications of this incident happening on the field and an outpouring of support? And now all the children that will be helped from this incident is infinitesimal. And who knows how their lives are going to change for the better because of this. And one thing at the right time and the right way for the right reasons can turn a life, just like his was when he was a kid. So this is then, for me, a great puzzle that I don't have the answer to, and I think that's what faith is all about. We're not supposed to know. Because if we knew, we'd probably get in the way and screw it up. And so standing back from this and thinking about 9-11 and how I felt that morning physically watching those planes go into that those towers, which is something my mind has never seen before. None of us had ever seen that before. It was something we'd never seen before. So we have this visceral reaction. So without comparing them equally, it's just another thing we had never seen before in real time like that. I look at this ripple effect, I think even, you know, almost a week later, it's still way too early to say this is what happened because we really don't know what happened. We saw the incident. That's just the, the kind of the pebble in the pond. But the ripple effect from this event remains to be seen. But I am so enamored with the fact that for all the pushing and pulling that goes on in this country about prayer or not praying or whatever that might be for you, uh, in that moment, all of that kind of melted away. And they were on their knees for a fallen brother. And the people in the stands who were just Minutes before yelling at, you know, profanity to each other, the Bills and the Bengals fans were hugging each other. Outside of the medical center in Cincinnati, the Buffalo Bills fans are lined up along with the Bengals fans. There's a lot of lessons in all this. A lot of lessons in all this. I go back to the thing that Kramer talked about, that domestic violence happening in Green Bay when you lose. And if you're win- used to winning, losing, you don't know how to handle so you beat the shit out of each other, apparently. If you played the game, that's probably not something you do very often. 
And if you're not so involved in the game that it's your identity, that's not something you would do. But I look at all these things and I think that's more of this. It's a game. It's a game. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's obviously great entertainment because if we didn't have our sports, I don't know how we would get anywhere in the world. There's a lot of good that comes out of it and a lot of difficulty, obviously. So in some ways, I thought I'd be able to put a capstone on this particular podcast and go say, here's what happened. Can't do that because we have yet to see the ramifications and the ripple effect of all of what took place. I think DeMar Hamlin, in my opinion, not even knowing the guy, if he comes out of this the same guy that he went in, something might be missing. Meaning the fact that because I've had a couple of these experiences where when I was 19, I had this electrical accident, I was gone, they had to revive me, that shifted me in a big way. When I was 27, I was in a very bad car accident, heart stopped, had to revive me, that shifted me in another way. And it just kept shifting me. And I'm, I'm of the mindset that if you, you know, the universe sends us wake-up calls. And if you don't listen to the whispers, pretty soon you get a two-by-four in the back of your head. And so for me, I got tired of waiting for the two-by-fours, and I just listen to the whispers as best I can now. So DeMar Hamlin cannot possibly be the same kid that went into this coming out of this. It's like they say with the storm. If, you're, if you come out of the storm the same way you went in, you miss the whole purpose of the storm. This is a storm in a lot of good ways. So I can't wait to see what this kid does with the rest of his life, the time that he's been given. Uh, I can't wait to see how other people rise up and feel better about life because of what happened, that it's sliced right through all the bullshit that's gone on. And, and because it's a game so loved and so revered in our favorite sport, it made even a more of an impact. I'm thrilled that he's doing well. And I, I can't wait to see him spend every single dime of $7 million on toys. Mm -mm -mm. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith.